Thank you for coming out so early this morning. I, I do think this is such an important topic, and it's one of those where we could easily have a semester-long conversation, right? So in 45 minutes, let's try to hit a few highlights, maybe at least give you some things to think. I have an hour. Yay, I can not talk so, so fast. So I'd be interested about why you came. How many of you know a particular person that you had in mind, someone who's really struggling with mental health issues? Yeah, look around. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, although I think there's no shame in it. I realize some people may. So um, I would recognize, of course, in an audience this size, there are a number of people who have significant mental health issues themselves. Welcome to the human race, right? We all have our stories. And of course, if you didn't raise your hand that you know someone, you just don't know that you know someone. Of course you do. The prevalence is, is quite high. There's about 4% um, who experience a very severe mental illness, something like schizophrenia, where you're losing touch with reality. But much higher, somewhere around 25% have um, uh, some kind of mental illness or mental health struggle in the previous year. And if you look at a lifetime, 50%, at least. I think that's probably an underestimate, frankly. But those are statistics from CDC um, and NIMH, lots of studies. But I think the last point I want to highlight, too, is all of us have our moments, right? We may or may not have ever been diagnosed, but all of us um, have our moments where we're struggling with mental health issues. I want you to think for a minute, and maybe we could get just a little discussion to prime the pump. What comes to mind when you think of mental health or mental illness? And do you think of those markedly differently? Let's start with just those two. What comes to mind when you think mental health? What did you think we were probably going to talk about here? Yeah. Okay. To everyday living, right? That's one of the diagnostic criteria that to how it meets to actually have a diagnosis is it interrupting your everyday living. Yeah, what else? It affects so many people, more and more. Yeah, what else? Coping, how are you gonna cope? We'll talk about that. What do you think of these ideas? What do you think of these people? What do you think, if you say, oh, well, that person has a mental health issue, what comes to mind for you? Care, hopefully care, hopefully not stigma. Yeah, go ahead. That they need effective resources, yeah. And sometimes finding those can be tricky, right? And then what do you think causes mental health struggles? What comes to mind first? What, trauma, what else? Attachment issues, lack of sleep. Don't underestimate that one, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, if you want to make somebody mentally ill, deprive them for sleep for about two days. Yeah. Stress. Sure. And then what do they need? So think about how, if, if you consider what caused it, that gives you some idea of what they need. So they need coping skills. They need sleep. They need whatever. We'll look at several factors. But I just invite us to notice that we have some assumptions, right? That we go into this thinking of particular people or particular attitudes. What do you think God or faith has to do with mental health issues? Well, a lot. Uh, uh, in, in what particular ways? 
Good and bad. Yeah, say more about that. Yeah, 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 even faithful people can have major struggles with mental health, right? And people with significant mental illnesses like schizophrenia, sometimes what they talk about in kind of manic ways includes God, and that can be confusing, yeah. Yeah, right, good, yeah, like, come on, what's, how does this fit? Did you have a thought as well? No. Yes, one more. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't always work, does it? <laughs> yeah. Like, if I'm not good enough, now I'm not spiritual enough, now I'm not whatever, depending on the nature of their struggle. Right? Of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. From me, and then I start carrying that too. I, I think of it sometimes like burdens that we're carrying. So, for example, if you have anxiety, and then you have pressure to get over it quickly, and then you feel guilty because you're not, and then you withdraw, and then you lose your fit, you know, so then instead of carrying one block, you're carrying seven blocks or something. You know, and think about what's the role of sin in there, or is it an illness? And again, I'm just wanting you to check your initial thoughts, your initial responses. And does that vary depending on what we're talking about? Do you have a different attitude toward that if we're thinking about an alcohol or drug addiction? Is that easier for you to see as sin? What about an eating disorder? What about a mood disorder like anxiety or depression? What about a major mental illness like schizophrenia? What do, you, what do you think about that? I just invite you to consider. Do they need prayer? Do they need repentance? Do they need counseling? Do they need medications? All these kinds of things come to mind, and we want to check our assumptions. I'd be interested to know, does your church family talk about it? Yeah, some yes, some no. In what ways are they talking about it, those who are nodding yes? In sermons? Sermon series, excellent. Right. What else? Yes, groups like Celebrate Recovery will come in and or uh, they'll use those materials. Uh -huh. Great, so they're acknowledging it's happening. Many congregations, though, notice how many of you said no. Many of uh, congregations um, don't ever speak of it. So again, think about how those bricks get added up. If I feel isolated, I feel like I'm the only one that nobody's talking about it. And then some other things to think about. What do you think, what do you do with direct commands? Something like this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So is it a sin to be anxious? What do you do with a passage like that? Or descriptions of the struggle. Romans 7, of course, being a classic one. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but I do what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, it's sin living in me. I have a desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. I see this other law at work in me, and so on. And then, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
is Jesus the sole answer? And does God work through a variety of ways? And so I think we have to wrestle with these and help people who are feeling guilty um, having an overly simplistic interpretation of some of these. And what about biblical stories? There's a few, right? <laughs> There's a, a number of stories that suggest this is an age-old struggle. Think about even great biblical leaders, Elijah, when he's running for his life and he's afraid. Notice what he says. Um, he comes to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. That's what we would call in the psychological world passive suicidal ideation. He's not saying I'm going to kill myself, but he's saying I wish, I wish I could. Or a, you want a really vivid one? How about Mark five, where the impure spirit came? A man with impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. He had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. In the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. That's the thing in college mental health, right? A lot of this age population, a lot of cutting, a lot of self-injury. When he saw Jesus from distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me? In God's name, don't torture me. And you know the story. Jesus puts the spirit into the herd of pigs, and they run off the cliff, right? What do you do with that? And what would we call that today? Would we think that that's a demon? Would we think that's a, a mental illness? Could it be both? What's going on there? And probably, based on the hands earlier, my guess is you know stories in your own lives in your family, some of you yourselves, people in your church, some who seem to have had some kind of miraculous healing like that, and some who, for example, depression is a lifelong struggle. Right? And how do we make sense of all of that? Okay, I'm going to start with um, three kind of basic tips that I'll elaborate on and then try to talk about a couple of mental health examples um, to try to keep it very real. So first one I would advise is don't be so afraid of the psychological literature, psychological concepts, psychological tools. But that doesn't mean you should leave out your faith or scripture or faith community or God, certainly. But you want to integrate wisely. You want to be thoughtful about how you do it. There are a lot of different models about this that can use super sophisticated um, theological language, but I actually like one that was from my undergraduate days, uh, Larry Crabb, who just speaks in pretty everyday terms, I think help us think about this. There are different ways to approach it. Some people do what he calls separate but equal. You got Christian issues, deal with it over here. You got psychological issues, go to a psychologist. Kind of like if you have a dental issue, you don't bring it to the church, you don't pray about a dental issue, you just go get your root canal or whatever. Crab would say, you know what, sometimes that makes sense. But the problem with that model is let's not forget that faith has a lot to do with these issues, with issues of forgiveness, with issues of anxiety, with issues of struggling habits and difficult um, self-acceptance or sin. God has a lot to say about that. 
and as Christian people to just go over to the side of only psychological, that's not right. We need to know that psychological light can, can be helpful, but it's not the whole story. And other people, he says, do what he calls the toss salad approach. Just mix it all up. You know, a little psychology, a little God, that'll work. And of course, he doesn't think that's very helpful, that you need to be more thoughtful about what, are you, what worldviews you're bringing to the table, whether these concepts fit with scripture and so on. And then there's some who take a conservative approach that, that he calls them the nothing butterists, that just say no psychology. God has all you need in scripture. And um, that, that it's not necessary. That all you need is grace, Jesus, the word, and so on. And, and his, the people who hold that position would say, sure, the, the Bible doesn't have anything about dentistry. That's why you got to go to a dentist. But since the Bible has so much about, about these, these struggles, that's all you need. Everything we need to know is outlined in scripture, these people think. And so the, the cure, so to speak, is pretty simple from this point of view. They would say, you identify the sin, and then you exhort somebody. That's all you got to do, repeat. Right? And as I could tell from your early comments, you know that doesn't always work. And then the last one, the one that he suggests, is he called spoiling the Egyptians. And the idea is just like when the Israelites conquered a nation, sometimes they were told they could take certain spoils, but they were also told what they couldn't do <laughs> and what they shouldn't take, right? And so he wants us to be discerning about what's useful from the psychological literature, make sure um, that it's not inconsistent with scripture but to go ahead and, and benefit from recent science, from new tools that have been um, developed. And I find so many psychological things really are affirming God's truth in very practical, tangible kinds of ways. So that's one. So think about pulling them together, but wisely, thoughtfully, not accidentally. Second, I would invite us to not be too simplistic in our understanding. What causes mental health struggles? All different things cause mental health struggles, right? And so we'll look at some of those. So to not make it a one-size-fits-all or that you, we always know exactly what somebody needs, that's just not helpful. And uh, each case has its own story, and it's important to think that one through because, again, depending on what's causing, will help inform what solution would be helpful. So we talked about my undergraduate resource, now I'll talk about graduate school days. This is sort of a basic that's assumed in much of psychology, the biopsychosocial model. The idea is lots of things cause struggles. Sometimes it's purely biological. Our field has been humbled in recent years. Things that we used to say was probably schizophrenia. The original book on schizophrenia was called Refrigerator Mothers. We blamed mothers for people developing schizophrenia. Then it became, okay, there's a predisposition if the right stressors are there. Now we know that one is pretty much physiological. That's just biological. Even when you're on medications, I remember working with a couple for a long time, they weren't making good progress and I couldn't understand. It seemed like they were doing all the right things. She seemed to be hopeful, but he was not. Finally, we realized it was his blood pressure med was depressing him, right? 
And so there can be issues like that that are purely physical. There are psychological issues that have to do with some of the things you've mentioned, things like coping skills, things like trauma, things that people have or don't have, things that have been difficult for them. And then there's social factors from everything from social support to sociological factors, like when we talk about things like eating disorders, do you think society's messages have anything to do with that? Of course. And so for one person, it can be clearly one, it could be clearly another, or it could be some interesting combination, right? And then I want to, I like this one, this one they didn't teach me in graduate school, but to add the spiritual piece too. Bio, psycho, social, spiritual. Sometimes it is a spiritual struggle. Sometimes that's part of it. All of this speaks to both potential problem, cause, and solution. Third tip I would say, it's most helpful. If you want to know how are you going to help somebody in the church deal with mental health issues, don't get into the us and, uh, us and them kind of mindset. It's so much more welcoming and so much more healing if it can be, yes, welcome to the human race. I get that. That makes sense to me. Don't make it all about you, like you got to tell your story first, but as you understand it, try to relate. Even if you don't have an anxiety disorder, have you had anxious moments? Even if you don't have depression, have you had times where you felt very, very sad? Even if you don't have an addiction, do you ever have a habit that you wish you could change but you keep coming back to it? That's helpful. It's not, we're all in this, right? That kind of attitude. Recognize though that for some people it's way more intense. So if you're only anxious sometimes, that will help you get a glimpse and help you be empathic but know that for some people, it's times 100, and imagine what that's like. If you don't struggle with addiction, but you know somebody that does, imagine how you feel when you can't change a habit, and imagine how it feels to them if it's been so severe for so long, and it's costing them their job and their family, et cetera. Imagine the hopelessness. So it can help you be empathic when you don't say, oh, those people, but whether it's like, yeah, we're all, we've all fallen. Okay, let's think about a couple of examples. Uh, let's think about depression, and let's think about anxiety. So when you think of depression, what do you think of first? What, how would you describe it or define it? Sad, yeah, that's, that's central to it, right? What else? Tired, yeah. Hurting physically as well as emotionally. Which, yeah, withdrawal. Some people say isolation is really the quintessential defining part of depression that people need to understand. Self-absorbed, yeah. Yeah, and not in a fun way, right? <laughs> people who are depressed can turn inward in a way that's pretty dark, and one of the things they need to do is get out. We'll talk about that. Anger, yeah, especially males will show it more in agitation and anger uh, many times rather than crying or appearing sad, per se. Yeah, a lot of different symptoms. You've named many of them. The other ones I would mention are some of the other physical things like um, sleep problems, trouble getting to sleep, trouble staying asleep, um, trouble waking up too early, appetite or weight changes, um, those kinds of things. But you've mentioned many of them. What I want you to understand, though, that will help you, I think, to help people is a just overly simplistic uh, sense of the dynamics of depression. So depression is a downward spiral, right? I'll say to the students, that which you feel like doing is not going to be helpful to you, right? 
think about it. A student who's kind of getting in a depressive funk, alarm goes off, what do they do? Snooze, snooze again, snooze again, miss class. They were already starting to feel depressed, now they miss class, how do they feel? Worse, their friends from class come by, where were you, I missed you today. You were already feeling bad, now you feel worse, you don't feel like dealing with your friends, so you blow them off, so then you miss your afternoon class, etc. right? And again, whether or not you have had that experience so intensely, do any of us know the feeling? I know I would feel better if I go exercise, but I don't really feel like it. So I'll lay on the couch and feel more like not exercising <laughs> and feel worse and et cetera, right? So we know that feeling, but that's important as you're trying to help somebody to know that what they feel like doing is probably not gonna be helpful to them. And again, let's think of some biblical examples. There, there are many. We talked about Elijah already with his passive suicidality. How about Hannah? Think about those uh, examples, that, uh, the characteristics that we talked about. Look at what she has um, when she's so sad that she's not able to have a child. She went up to the house of the Lord. Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Those are depressive symptoms, right? Crying, sad, not eating. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? That kind of intervention. Even Paul, so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. I don't know that that's diagnosable, but that's a depressive feeling, right? God has something to say about that. David, of course, so many psalms, and many people will take comfort in that, to, to say, oh, it's okay to name it. Oh, Lord, for I'm in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails, and he said tired, because of my affliction, my bones grow weak. And again, notice how many people said yes at the beginning, my church never speaks of it. Scripture does. Like it, it's important to name it, to acknowledge it, to notice that that's part of the human condition. We all struggle. We all need this. Even Jesus in his darkest hour, his soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And what does he need? Somebody to stay with him. So again, what do you think causes depression? Why would somebody be depressed? Stress, trauma, all those things, right? Grief, life, <laughs> amen. What was it? Hardships, yeah. And what's the treatment? Remember, biopsychosocial. Sometimes you'll have people that, again, get into the more reductionistic. And I'm not saying all of this is wrong, but it's interesting. Joyce Meyer, a Christian author that some of you may enjoy, she talks about, well, disappointment turns into depression. That's if you hold it too long. That's her view. Things may feel us, make us feel sad temporarily, but we must not stay sad. And the way she says it, if you don't let the devil impress you with what he does, then he can't oppress you. And if he can't oppress you, he can't depress you. So choose to be led by the Holy Spirit, and you can have victory over depression. Okay, what's your reaction to that? Too simplistic. Maybe for some people, but it's so bad <laughs> you don't like. Some people have s would tell you, even when I've taught a class like this, oh, I found that very helpful. Okay. 
It might. Yeah. Right. 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 So if her previous thing is true, if it's maybe just not getting over your disappointment, you need to move on, of course. But if it's, remember, biopsychosocial, there could be lots of uh, reasons besides the spiritual. What would the drug commercials say? They, they make you think it's all physical. For some people, it is all physical. And then all you need is a pill, but that's not true for everybody. And by the way, I'm not giving an anti-meds commentary, but again, I don't want it to be reductionistic, one size fits all. In general, groups like the National Institute for Mental Health, American Psychological Association, et cetera, would say for depression, typically what's helpful, just from a secular point of view, they would say psychotherapy and sometimes medications. But I want to come back to the spiritual because I do not want to pretend like it's never spiritual. And even that sometimes the spiritual can be a good thing. We like to be really happy. You know, we want to be uh, excited and stimulated all the time. And sometimes there's a journey that might be okay that has a depressed feel to it. And of course, the ancient poem by St. John of the Cross on a dark night, and you hear him uh, wrestling with the idea that it's, it's in those dark moments that you learn to let go of things of this world and you learn to cling to God. And there's something right about that. Look at the last paragraph. Leaving all ceased and I abandoned myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. So some of the things we said earlier, being too self-focused or being too worried about today. If, if you're, there's a wrestling with God that's a healthy thing, that's good. And it's not just that poet, of course. A lot of people will talk about the dark night of the soul as being a very important spiritual crossing for them. And regardless of mental health struggle, addiction, depression, anxiety, etc. sometimes it's in those hard moments that people learn to rely on God and have huge leaps in their spiritual formation or in their sense of God with them. And I would never want to discount that. It's certainly a scriptural concept. Romans 5 is just one example. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces character. Sorry, su suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out. Right. That's so, so let's don't so quickly say, okay, it's all physical or it's all psychological. Let's remember there can be something spiritual that is good and right and part of the journey. So from a Christian worldview, I wouldn't want to minimize a spiritual journey. Dark nights can be okay, but that's different than clinical depression. So I wouldn't want people to go, oh yeah, it's just a dark night of the soul. I'm just going to pray for this person when this is what their brain's doing, right? There, there's physical differences in the brains of people who are severely depressed. It, is, it becomes a physical um, issue. So we don't want to assume one or the other. A couple of stories from master therapists that I think capture um, the nature of what helps people recover from depression that you can think about practical ways to employ in your own life. There's one, Bill O'Hanlon, who he, he uh, talked about 
he did this video called Rec Recovery in Depresso Land or something cheesy like that. But he's a really master therapist and from a solution-focused way, like how are we going to help people move forward? And he told his patients, here's the deal. You're going to work with me. You've got to check in every day. You have to come in, check in with my assistant every day. I'll see you once a week, but you have to come every day. These were people who were so severely depressed they couldn't hardly move. They weren't going to work. They'd lost their jobs, et cetera. Why would he make them come every day? Get out. Yeah. Get back in routine. What did I say about the nature of depression? Downward spiral, right? So if you're feeling overwhelmed, but all you're being asked to do is I can show up, right? Well, maybe just maybe you get in the car and you know, the sun felt pretty good on your back as you were walking to the office. And then maybe that assistant was kind of friendly, and that was helpful. And then you run into somebody, and you think, let's get a cup of coffee. And it has the potential of turning it around. So what you want to be, I think, that, that one teaches me, is you want to be empathic for sure and patient, but help people to get the spiral going the other way because it will naturally keep going down into a pretty dark place. The other one I love is by Eric Erickson, and he was brought in, flown in to see, by an adult child to see the elderly mother who was severely, severely depressed and had been for a long time. He comes into, does a home visit, not many of us do that anymore, but um, came into the home and it looked like a depressed house, uh, the house of a depressed person. It was dark, plastic on, not much going on. He noticed a church bulletin. He noticed an African violet, beautiful African violet under the sunlight. But other than that, it was just a dark and dreary place. So here's this master therapist. He has one day with this woman. And what does he do? He, he says, woman, you are not doing your Christian duty. You should mm -hmm. be, and he's not even coming from a Christian worldview himself, but you should be grabbing that church bulletin and you should be giving people African violets. You have a gift. African violets are hard to grow, and you have the gift. If somebody's having a baby, they should get one of your African violets. If somebody's getting married, that's a great wedding gift. If somebody's lost someone in their family, you should give an African violet. And he just kind of scolded her. And people were saying, like, how could you be so mean to this poor, depressed woman? And it's this concept called deviation amplification. And what that means is instead of, he could have looked around and go, oh, that's dark, oh, that's really, really dark, oh, man, how long has that been dark, oh, that looks depressed, you know, how long, you, you know, et cetera. But instead, he looked for the deviation, the one place there was light and beauty, and he wanted to expand that, wanted to amplify that. I love that concept for my own life, for my friends, for clients. What's going well that you can stretch, that you can expand? Beautiful end of that story, by the way. When he was telling the story to, to the colleague, he grabbed the binder from his, from his office shelf and pulled out newspaper clippings, and it was African Violet Queen <coughs> in the Minneapolis-St. Paul Fair. So it worked. It got her out of the house and beyond to the best state of her life. So imagine that story for somebody that you're caring about. Where is there a little bit of life, little bit of beauty, and how can you stretch that? How can you support them in amplifying that?
we could do a whole session on this, but let me just give you one word. If you're not sure if they're suicidal, ask. Okay, you never gave somebody an idea that they weren't thinking about before, and it's much more important that you ask and be sure that they'll that they're safe. So, never avoid that question. If you're wondering if they are, you should ask. Okay. I'm going to go through the anxiety part, and then we'll take some discussion if that's all right. So anxiety, what do you think of when you think of anxiety? This is the number one increasing mental health concern right now. Our, our nation is becoming more anxious. College students are becoming more anxious. What does that mean? What, is some, what do you think of when you think of anxiety? Fear, feeling overwhelmed. What else? Panic attacks, out of control. Yeah. In a setting like ours, college setting, where we have a public safety, you see the blotter and a lot of things that look physical, I know are probably panic attacks, right? Stomach pain, chest pain, can't breathe, no, 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 right? That's the, the symptom in many cases. So th there's certainly worry, and people think about that, worrying about the future, worrying about what they can't control, worried about tomorrow. Um, there's avoidance. Often people, anxiety and avoidance are friends, I'll often say. And then there's also a very physical part of it which can relate to the panic attacks. People who are having panic attacks are not breathing deeply. Um, they're doing that really shallow kind of hyperventilating and it just causes the whole body to get stressed. So if the um, depression is a downward spiral, anxiety I think of as stairs down. And with anxiety and avoidance, by the way. So I'm nervous about my class, so I don't go. So then I don't get the directions about the paper, and uh, I think the paper is such a big deal, but I'm afraid to ask my professor. So then I don't get started on it because, I, you know, and it just keeps going. And so how do you bring it down? And think about how that could apply in so many cases. Okay, I have a ticket. I need to go pay it. Okay, now I'm in trouble. Okay, now I have to go to court. Okay, now I don't go to court, and et cetera, et cetera. And it's not often not because people don't care. It's because they care so much, but they don't know how to manage their anxiety. The other simple metaphor I use for this is it's, or image is like a lion. That's how you feel. If there were a lion in your room, could you sleep? Anxious people will say, I can't get to sleep. Well, if there were a lion in your room and your body and mind are acting like there's a lion in your room, could you sleep? Of course not. Or... Uh, I can't read, I can't focus, I can't, well, could you if there was a lion out there? No, <laughs> but you're on alert like that. And so part, it's hyperarousal. Part of what you have to do is bring it down. So the, at the risk of beating a, the drum, right, what causes it? S same kind of things, right? Biopsychosocial, could be any number of things. Clearly there's something going on sociologically that is causing more and more people in the United States to feel anxious. Any quick thoughts about what that is? Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear you. <laughs> Twitter, Twitter, thank you. Social media in general, the escalation of so much going on and much less the content there, right? Yeah, anything else? Lack of trust. The news, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of hostility, et cetera. But think about if you're struggling, 
Um, where is the spiritual part here? There are, again, direct references in Scripture for anxiety especially. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, and so on. Last verse, last piece. Can you, any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Is it a sin to be anxious? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication. Certainly not what we were designed for, right? To be constantly anxious. But then I appreciate this uh, Christian author saying, people of faith often feel guilty for being anxious. They wonder if perhaps they're not praying hard enough or not trusting God enough. The truth is, Christians get anxiety disorders at roughly the same age rate as everyone else. This should not be a surprise. After all, Christians catch cold as often as everyone else and get cancer or heart disease or high blood pressure at the same rate as everyone else. No one thinks of those as spiritual failings. Anxiety disorders are what happens to a person when the brain's fire alarm center, the amygdala, gets a chemical burn from bathing too long in stress chemicals making it hypersensitive and overreactive to new problems. Anxiety disorders are not a failure of character or spiritual maturity. They're what happens when the brain's stress warning system becomes overwhelmed and hyperactivated. Right? What's your reaction to that? <laughs> exactly, you like it. Anybody want to push back on it? Yeah, I think, again, to not be reductionistic, right? I, th I think a healthy cognitive behaviorist would say, okay, you may be more vulnerable because of your physiology and still these strategies of learning to think differently, learning to behave differently, learning not to avoid but to settle yourself are going to be extra important for you who have the vulnerability. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, yeah, right. So, so many solutions, including spiritual, will be an important part for this person. So scripture encourages not worrying. It's not where, where God had in mind for us to stay. He didn't want us to be addicted. He didn't want us to be depressed. He didn't want us to be anxious. And yet sometimes we need more practical tools to, okay, so what am I going to do? Back to the cognitive behavioral so everyone, again, has some of these feelings, and some people need uh, particular therapies. But there are tips that are helpful for lots of us. And um, some people, by the way, of course, will need medications for this as well. Self-care, counseling, and meds, where anxiety would be the general secular advice. So we're going to put spiritual in that, right? really resting in God and in scripture, but maybe not just beating yourself up of, oh, I shouldn't be worried, I shouldn't be worried, but learning to rest in your hiding place with the shepherd, the shelter, mother hen, right? Using scriptures not just to escalate anxiety, but to appreciate God is with you. Whatever your struggle, God is with you. Part of the journey with anxiety does tend to be challenging the thoughts a bit, Considering, for example, is my worry realistic? Walking through the what ifs. Well, what if this job interview doesn't work out? Okay, what if it does? 
well, what if I never get a job? Okay, what if, what if, you know, and realize often the worst is not so, so bad. Um, where's the proof? I'm sure she hates me. I'm sure I'm, you know. Okay, what's the evidence? Are you ignoring evidence to the contrary? Those are just sort of conversational things you can put in there. But the basic idea is rather than worrying about it, do something about it. Um, identify actions that could solve the problem. They say anxious people have lived through many traumas they've never lived through, right? <laughs> because they're getting ahead of themselves. And so part of it is helping them empathize with anxiety, but help them back up. We don't really know if that's true. We don't know if you're gonna be kicked out of school. We don't know. But think about this prayer. It's, it's so common, it's almost cliche, but think about the wisdom of it. Why is this so useful with people struggling with addictions? Why is it relevant <laughs> to people dealing with anxiety? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That is a beautiful thing for someone who's struggling with addiction. There's a reason that AA uses that all the time. But then I would say it helps for people with anxiety too. That's a good way to make a list. All right, what's upsetting me? What's bothering me right now? What's within my control of that? And what's not within my control? Okay, how do I let that go? And how do I um, do what I need to do about the other? General self-care, so, so, so important for people with mental health struggles especially. It's good for all of us, for sure. But again, the self-care should not be underestimated. Often, remember, downward spiral or escalating avoidance. When you're in a bad place, you're not doing some of the very basic things that would be helpful to you. So I wanna just um, go through these and then we'll talk for just a moment. So these are basic ways for all of us to take care of ourselves, to help us be more resilient. It's not rocket science, most of it, but the question is not, do you know that this is a good idea, but are you doing this? So the first one, physically, are you being a good steward of your body? Eating well, getting exercise, sleeping well. And recognizing some people are gonna struggle with their sleep, but are you doing the best you can within that? The words of uh, the story of Elijah, remember when we talked about his passive suicidality, but the angel gets sent, and you know, here's this leader of God in this desperate moment, you'd think the angel would say something profound. Do you remember what she said? Go to sleep, right? <laughs> Have something to eat, and then it repeats, <laughs> same thing, right? Don't, don't underestimate the power of taking care of yourself in just very basic ways. Socially, we were created for community, right? And again, the tendency to withdraw when you're struggling, when you need it the most. You need people in your life when you're hurting. You need people in your life to prevent going to down, downward spirals. So even when you're busy, even if your life is full, take time for real relationships. S research study after research study confirms that social support is one of the most predictive factors in resilience, whether it's the little bumps in the road or whether it's great loss in life. Having people who really know you, so, so important. Love this quote by Nowen. No man can stay alive when nobody's waiting for him. Everyone re who returns from a long and difficult trip is looking for someone waiting for him at the station or the airport. Everyone wants to tell their story and share moments of pain and exhilaration with someone who stayed home waiting for him to come back. 
A man can keep his sanity and stay alive as long as there is one person waiting for him. We all need that. And that may be the most important thing you do for somebody. I'm trying to take that. <laughs> Sorry. Cognitively, we've talked about this a lot, but you don't need to become therapist if you're a friend and supportive person, but you can ever so gently notice and challenge these a little. Are they being perfectionistic? Are they doing what we call catastrophic thinking, like it will be disaster if? Are they mind reading? I'm sure she doesn't like me. Are they fortune telling? That's that future thing. I know it's going to be terrible. I know it's going to be horrible. Living through many traumas they've never lived through. Romans would remind us we're changed often by the renewing of our minds, not necessarily by circumstances changing. Mindfulness, I want to just mention this in a couple ways. One is mindfulness, what I call big picture, meaning opposite of mindlessness. If mindlessness is just go through your life in a fog, just going the way the current is taking you, mindfulness says, wait a minute, let me be intentional. Let me be aware of what I'm experiencing right now the good things, like enjoy this conversation, don't be distracted, enjoy this meal, don't just wolf it down, um, but also to, I'm not really feeling my life is good right now, what do I need to do differently? The thing is to be present, intentional, and aware. I'm feeling anxious, what do I need to do? You have to check in with yourself to be, to be aware. I think I'll turn off this new show that's making me crazy. And I will go for a run, or I'll pray, or I'll call these friends. I'll notice God's creation. Being in creation is a huge part of that, by the way, for many people. Be out, move, get outside, breathe deeply. And then mind quieting activities, like purposefully breathing deeply, doing muscle relaxation things. You can look those up online. Meditation sometimes can be very helpful for people to have a particular um, that you can find if you need some professionals. I'll be happy to talk to you afterwards. One's online that just help you focus on your breathing to relax or stretch or simple things like that. Um, and also um, spiritual practices like Lecto Divina to take one passage, not to study it, not to beat yourself up with, not to get anxious about, but just to read it and read it again, a short passage, and read it again. Notice what strikes you. Notice what God has for you today. Use that as the basis for prayer, those kinds of practices. So in sum, what do healthy churches, healthy ministers do? I think it's healthy to acknowledge that mental health struggles are real, mention it in sermons, have cl class series, understand the multifaceted nature of them, and refer out when it's appropriate, but stay connected. Don't just go, woo, you go over there and now we're done. I think sometimes the pendulum in churches has swung from afraid of psychology to, oh, okay, we refer you out, to now it needs to be, sometimes we refer out, but we stay connected because we love you and we believe that spiritual life is central to healthy living. As an, an individual, provide support. A listening ear, hugely important, hugely important empathic, allow the person to be honest about what they're really dealing with, and challenge ever so gently the distorted cognitions, but also give them those other images. If you like to imagine the shepherd leading you, or you find it helpful to have this image of a hiding place in the cleft of a rock as the ocean is crashing, but you're safe, offer that for them. Um, suggest things like that. 
encourage new behaviors like exercise, et cetera, but join in instead of like being above them to say, hey, why don't we start walking? I think I could use that too. And again, refer if needed, but stay connected and pray, pray, pray. We have a few minutes for comments or questions, reflections. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a common experience. We have sometimes college students who will finally be able to get help when they come to college because their parents were so nervous about it. Um, but I think in your setting, depending on the openness of the parent, sometimes you can have some influence to normalize a, a little bit. Uh, in our setting, uh, our congregation recently, um, a number of students were struggling similarly, and the youth minister shared his own struggle a little bit, just in a public setting. And I found that to be super um, gracious and gentle and potentially impactful, um, much less one-on-one -on -one conversations. Like if you, depending on how open this father is, some people have never heard the idea that there could be a biological factor, that these things can be very real, that it doesn't mean that you're a bad parent. I think a lot of times parents are worried that people will know their kids messed up or that it's some sign and so there's a reason to defend so if you can join him a little bit in conversation but she I don't know if she wants you to have that conversation but otherwise teach some coping skills I would say in the meanwhile yeah yeah yeah, you see, that's a really good question. I think some of those models I showed at the beginning, how like nothing butterous cross off psychology, they're going to be particular churches or particular cultural groups that are going to be more prone to want to do that, right? And so I think m my observation is often it's not a one-time thing, but it's little by little by little. If you can begin to say, think about language systems theory talks about like, the more we talk about things in a certain way, it becomes solidified like a big rock. And so sometimes our journey is to chip, chip, chip away instead of <laughs> blast it, right? So if you make a comment in one of your sermons um, about people struggling with anxiety, it's like, oh, well, maybe. Or somebody shares that a counselor was helpful in a class. Oh, it sounds like your counselor. You might punctuate that a little bit to, to give that idea, maybe, just maybe. And then sometimes it's helpful to have a more head-on discussion, like in a men's Bible study or something. That could even be one of the discussions. What, what keeps us from being willing to seek help? What's good about that? What makes us strong and so on? But what is not helpful? What is prideful? What is um, unaware? What is not allowing God to use resources that he's brought right to us in a way that would be helpful? And how is what you're struggling with impairing you to help others and live your best life, you know, and develop your talents, those kinds of things. Sometimes men, I think, appreciate more almost like a coaching mindset at the risk of stereotyping, but some men appreciate, you know what, this is just a place where you're going to learn to do things differently. And especially in some of these things we talked about today, that's a lot of what therapy is. It's not as much tell me about your mother as people think it is going to be. It might be on occasion. <laughs> There's a few mothers that need to be talked about. But that's very much um, an extreme and a, a more stereotype of therapy. A lot of it is how are you going to 
get some coaching to do it differently. Thank you. Yes. That's great. So the question is, at what point is it like too much? Like refer on, you need to refer. Yeah, that's a great question. I should have covered that. Thank you. So when should you refer on? Some things to observe clearly if there's emergency safety kinds of issues. So if somebody is maybe not going to be safe in the immediate future, absolutely. And that might even be a hospital visit tonight or a 911 call or whatever. So that, of course. But I think the other has to do with things like, is it not getting better? Um, are they, is it pretty severe? And it just seems to be with you, they're talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, and it's not going anywhere. And, and the, the important moment there is how you make that referral. So it's not that you're tired of them, it's that I care about you a lot and I'm happy to be here with you, but I'm starting to get the idea that maybe a little more professional help would be helpful. And again, recognizing for some people, even medications may be a part of that. If they seem to really have a physiological thing, could be a shift of hormones in their life, could be a medication interaction, could be a predisposition, um, could be a lot of things. And so it's, I think it's how you do it. But if it's an emergency, a safety issue, and, or it's not getting better is the overly simplistic way to think about that. Others? Yeah, that's, that's important. One, obviously it's important, sorry for <laughs> stating the obvious. Thank you for raising that. Relationship violence is gonna be what you will see often in churches and um, lay counseling kinds of things because again, they may not have spoken of that before but they may come and tell you. One of the things that's important that comes to mind first as you ask that, especially in light of having just talked about how to manage anxiety, there is a difference between anxiety and fear. So the last thing you wanna do is encourage somebody who's in a dangerous situation to calm down and not be worried. There's, a g the, there's even a book title, The Gift of Fear. If you are in danger, you should get out of danger. And so then I think you start to get to the point of helping them think of other resources, shelters and so on. Recognizing that's a journey, right? And so part of it is empathy, especially with domestic violence. If we're talking adults here, often the partner uh, takes about five times to leave and really leave if they need to leave for safety. And so part of it is not giving up. After the third time, well, fine, if you're not gonna leave him, you know, that kind of thing. So, wow, this must be hard. And instead of wagging our finger and say, you need to leave, one of the things they say in that literature is reflect back what they've told you. You told me you were worried for your life. You told me you didn't know what he would do to the children. You told me he strangled you so hard. You, know, you don't say that all in a row, but you know, I, I heard you say you were afraid for your life, and so I'm holding that when you're thinking about going back to him. And I realized that was just a week ago. You were afraid for your life. The other thing, though, is to recognize often they love that person. <laughs> it's complicated, right? And it's often the father of their child, et cetera. And so to empathize with their ambivalence, but help them to get to safety, help them to get to more resources. You don't have to say, he's a scumbag, I give up on him for the rest of his life. But don't 
naively get into couples counseling. With domestic violence, that's very contraindicated if the violence is, is active right now because you might not even catch it, but she discloses something in that session with you and he gives the look and that means you're gonna pay for that later and it just sets up vulnerability that's not safe. So those are a few quick thoughts, yeah. She's saying that, that calling police doesn't always help, sometimes more dangerous. Police will tell you it's the most dangerous situation for them too when they go. Um, I, I would say each situation is unique, but I appreciate the point of not assuming right that minute that's the best thing to do, um, depending on how dangerous the moment is right now. Um, sometimes it's about helping her plan and exit when he's at work or those kinds of things, yeah. That could be a whole nother semester too, <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I think it partly depends on what they do with it. Um, but in general, I'm hopeful about it. I talk to students about maturing into their mental health issue, even if they have a mental illness. Um, for example, when they're in that depressed state and missing class and blowing off friends and getting worse and worse and have to take a mental health leave, repeat another semester, repeat another semester, and then finally they get it. You know what? I have to learn to do what I don't feel like doing and people get a, the wisdom of living, um, and with anxiety, maybe not beating themselves up so much, maybe addictions, leaving that behind, but knowing how important support is, and accountability, and honesty. So if people will sort of work their program, as they say in AA, I think um, the wisdom of, of life, uh, maybe I'm biased, older I get, but I think we're getting wiser, and I think with, um, with mental health issues, you kind of mature into them. Are we up on time? Okay, can I end this in a prayer? God, I, I thank you for each person here, for their openness, for their concerns. God, for people here that are hurting themselves right now, that are struggling with depression, anxiety, addictions, God, be with them and help your presence be known. God, for the rest of us, um, help all of us to recognize we have our own struggles and we need you to and help us to be discerning and open to being helpful to people to listening to their journey to pointing them to the right sources of help and just to help them to image you in ways that help them on their way god we thank you for your son it's in his name we pray amen